Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. So welcome to our latest episode in our series, Superman HD. Superman HD being Superman Human and Divine. And um, today's installment is called Outcast In. Now, life is a funny thing, some would say. And maybe there are those of us that would agree with that. And one of the things about life is that it can present us with things and situations that can cause us to be satisfied with things that we ought not to be satisfied with, whilst being dissatisfied with things that we ought not to be dissatisfied with. Everybody is seeking satisfaction. Everybody's seeking fulfillment of some sort or another. And it's just a matter of what we choose to satisfy ourselves with. Or maybe even what we choose to pursue to satisfy ourselves with. Thinking it will bring satisfaction. Hoping it will bring satisfaction. And these can present certain challenges for us. I want to introduce to you two people. Um, The first is Tunde. And um, Tunde is a a very talented individual, um, young man who has worked his way up through the, the ranks, as it were, in the, in, the, in the arena of football. And having worked his way through the ranks, let me just move back up here so I can um, see everybody a little more easily. Having worked his way up through the ranks, he's got to that place in life where he is, he's fulfilled an ambition. He is playing professional football. He's playing professional football for a a relatively well-known team. I mean, Charlton Athletic, local club, Uh, maybe a few supporters here. But then again, maybe not. (laughs) Local club allegiances kind of um, tend to be a bit rare these days. But he's made his way into the, the squad He's vying for a place in the first team. And Tunde, by all intents and purposes, has a lot to be satisfied with. And yet there is still a dissatisfaction in his life. Such that it causes him to even jeopardize his place in the the first team by way of the bad company that he chooses to continue to keep. So we all appreciate school days and you have a kind of circle of friends and there's a loyalty and a bond that's developed and going through school days, you kind of get to the end. Within three years, they say, 75% of the people that you were at school with, you won't even remember. And yet there were a, a, a tight circle that he continued to roll with and Unlike Tunde, who was really progressive in in trying to pursue a career, these guys were trying to pursue a career in other ways. 
um, let's say on the black market, the underground economy, um, certain members of his friendship group were what they might call street pharmacists or drug dealers to others. And by reason of Tunde's allegiance and loyalty to these individuals, he found himself in problems. When one day, whilst riding with his friends in the car, enjoying the company, enjoying the music, they were pulled over, and unbeknown to Tunde, um, having been pulled over by the police, there were firearms found in the vehicle. And that fundamentally put a spanner in his progress. You would think, Tunde, man, like, they're your friends. No one's saying that you've got to completely disown them, but be wise. You have a lot to lose. You have a lot to be satisfied with. Why would you need the approval of your friends as well as the, the satisfaction of the career that is before you? A lot to be satisfied with. And yet, he was satisfied with the wrong things in some way. Satisfied to continue in such close company with those whose lifestyle would put his own at jeopardy. I said I was going to introduce you to two people. The other person, it's got to be a lady, right? So if um, Tunde was our male character, let's say Teresa is our female. Just so I can um, continue to stay on track. <laughs> old school name, amen. And, it's, and there's a reason why Teresa has an old school name, because she's a, a mature lady who's been in the faith for many years and loves the Lord. And yet, as she's continued in the faith, she's become somewhat dissatisfied with her current church surroundings. Somewhat dissatisfied with the tenor of the preaching. Somewhat dissatisfied with what she considered to be a lack of power manifest. And so she began to give herself to other teachings other teachings which led to her experience a certain sensational dynamic of ministry. And so, being dissatisfied with her current situation, she changed her situation and left her church where she had become established in the Lord and was growing in the Lord and was serving fruitfully. And moved away to join this sensational ministry. Only to find out that the miracles were a sham. And the minister was a charlatan. You see, we can all be challenged with situations that can cause us to become dissatisfied with something we ought not to. And place our and find our satisfaction in things that we ought not to. And so as we meet Jesus in the text here, we see this situation unfold before us. 
And we see the way in which Jesus responds as he meets the woman here at the well. So let's pray and give our attention to John chapter 4, verses 1 to 26. Dear Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. And through your word you have revealed yourself. You are the all in all. You are the be all and end all. And our desire is that, Lord, today you you would bring us to a place of deep, deep satisfaction. Deep satisfaction. Because, Lord, we long for satisfaction. It's clear, Lord, that we were built to long for satisfaction. That's the way you made us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would lead us to that place of satisfaction. In your name and for your glory we pray. Amen. So we're in John chapter 4. And previously, if you will remember, we had a close encounter of the Christ kind as we met with Jesus and Nicodemus in chapter 3. And Nicodemus came to him by night, a ruler of the Pharisees. He was a don. And not just in a colloquial sense, but he was a top learned man among the people. And he came at night with a certain level of self-assurance that Jesus had to kind of strip away layer by layer. And yet we meet now with a woman here who is a social outcast. And we'll see the contrast as she comes to Jesus by day and meets with him. In the way that he responds to her in comparison to Nicodemus. It's a beautiful picture. And so, verse 1. I'll read from verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making more, so he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So Jesus has become the talk of the town. His notoriety has increased. He is known. After his, if you like, exhibition of authority in the temple, the religious leaders were particularly attentive to who he is. Who is this guy and what is he about? A question that I'm sure the fact that we're all sitting here today suggests that we have asked or are asking. A question that others ought to be asking. Because Jesus is one of those people you can't ignore. Jesus is not one of those people you can take or leave. He is a person who we have to reconcile, we have to resolve. Who is he and what is he about? And so, 
There was a certain level of jealousy that's implied in our first verse. You see, the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples. He was adding people to his number of followers. More than John, John the Baptist, the renowned prophet, baptizing in the River Jordan. They were threatened by this. They were concerned by this. And so as a result, Jesus seeks to leave Judea and go to Galilee and just get out of the heat. There's a good lesson in there for us. Oftentimes throughout the New Testament, we see that Christians are not running to become martyrs. So many of us think that, you know, I'm going to be a witness for the Lord and uh, I'm going to put myself in the lion's den. You're going to put yourself in the lion's den. Daniel, back in the Old Testament, was placed in the lion's den. I'm going to put myself in the furnace for the Lord. But hold on. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were placed in the fire. Oh, sorry. That's the Hebrew names. The heathen names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yeah? They were placed in the fire. They didn't run to the furnace. They weren't looking for martyrdom. They weren't looking for problems. Jesus here wasn't looking for problems. He had a mission to fulfill. Whilst going through the urban ministry program, it, it was quite startling to me to see actually the, the number of references in the New Testament when the Christians came under persecution and they sought to avoid that persecution. They sought an opportunity to get out of persecution. Now there were times when there was no way out and so they were beaten and they were whipped and they were imprisoned. As Christians we are to seek opportunity to represent Christ to preach the gospel. We have to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to become proud in our witness to the point where we jeopardize our, ourselves unnecessarily, unduly, because of our quote-unquote Christian pride, our spiritual pride. Yes, we are to seek opportunity to preach the gospel. And there will be those occasions when we don't have to find trouble. Trouble will find us. And there will be no way out. And as those who are faithful to the way of the Lord, he who has gone before us and he received the ultimate trouble, he took it upon himself. He accepted it. We too likewise should stand, having done all to stand, therefore. Amen. So he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, maybe we can flip the lights off. You're not going to see it very clearly and I'm really disappointed that Pastor Rob ain't here because he would really salute my attempts for trying to show some kind of visual. He's a visuals guy, right? You notice there was no swinging and whizzing as mine came in. <laughs> Can't compete with them levels. <laughs> and so here we see uh, a map and towards the bottom left hand side, you can barely see it maybe, but it says Judea. 
about a third of the way from the bottom, and then about a third of the way up from there, next to the um, yellow arrow that's pointing down, it says Samaria, and then right at the top of that arrow, it says Galilee. You can just see that, yeah? And so the bottom arrow is Jerusalem and the area in Judea within which Jesus was approximately around. And the top arrow, the very end of the top arrow, is where he was heading to, which is Galilee. Now, it's helpful for us to see this because it gives us a sense of the, 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 the nature of the journey, the scope of the journey. What you see um, vaguely to the right of those, both of those yellow arrows is the River Jordan, kind of running parallel to that route going north. And what would happen is, um, because of the, the dissension, because of the historic animosity between the Jews and Samaritans, which I'll explain a bit more about in a moment, the, the rabbis in particular and others who attempted to be more conscientious as Jews, they wouldn't go straight up that arrow path through Samaria to Galilee. But what they would do is they would cross the Jordan, go up parallel to the Jordan, and then cross back over into Galilee. Which you can appreciate is a longer journey, right? So their, their um, reasons for doing that was so that they wouldn't become defiled by association with these ungodly, unclean Samaritans. Now, the history of the Samaritans is such. They were actually half Jews, if you like. So back in 2 Kings 17, as, as the northern kingdom, we see that Samaria came in and, and was, um, the area of Samaria was overtaken by the Assyrians and they were deported into captivity. And at that point, intermarriage took place and the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes that had been in apostasy consistently from the, 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 the the, the forming of that group of tribes as an individual state, um, they were taken into, uh, uh, into captivity, never really to, to be restored. Never to be restored to their land. And through the intermarrying and so on, they lost their Jewish identity and took on a Syrian culture and, and that of other cultures nearby. And so therefore, that area became populated by mixed heritage Jews. Now, if you have any kind of familiarity with the scripture, particularly the Old Testament, you will know that the preservation of the Jewish bloodline was paramount. They were forbidden by law to intermarry with those of other nations. We see a situation in Ezra 9 when the exiles have returned from Babylonian captivity and they've come back to the southern area of, of Judea, um, which is Judah and Benjamin, and they're seeking to restore worship. And there's a point at which they've said, how many people here have intermarried whilst being in exile? You know what? Any of you that have done that, you're cut off from the record. And it's either you leave your wives and your partners and be faithful to the Lord 
or be struck from the record of Israel. Now you think to yourself, but they were in, ex in exile and they're married. And but it was an ungodly alliance that would potentially, somewhat unbeknown to those of the time, of Ezra's time, potentially pollute the messianic bloodline. And so it seems raw. It seems hard. You're going to have to leave your wife. Some of them had families. Leave them and put them aside. Put them away is the term. And be faithful to the Lord. As we consider this, we can appreciate the New Testament as it speaks to us as believers. Not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Not to enter into marriage with those who are not Christians. Some of us struggle with that and find it hard. And yet, in 2 Corinthians, the question is asked, what relationship does darkness have with light? What relationship does God have with Belial? Because we are of a different seed. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And therefore, we're not to marry unbelievers. So this is the backdrop to this situation in regard to where Jesus is. And so where the two arrows meet is where he is about halfway on the journey and it's midday, the sixth hour. So the hours started counting from sunrise about 6 a.m. It was midday. It was the hottest part of the day. And even in this, we see a revelation of Jesus' humanity. What does it say in verse 6? And I'm hoping that you guys are following along in your Bibles. Whether you have paper or electronic, that's all good. What does it say in verse 6? Jesus, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied. Jesus was weary. Jesus was tired. Jesus was experiencing exhaustion. We see that he was thirsty and he was hungry. So, verse 7 and 8. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said, give me a drink. Give us a drink, love. <laughs> For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So the nearest city to where they were was Neapolis, and it was a short distance away. So they'd gone into the city to buy food. So there was obviously physical need that Jesus had. Now for some people it's hard for us to get our head around that. Because we think about the divinity of Jesus, we think about the miraculous power, and even as we'll see displayed, the supernatural power in his interaction with this lady at the well. And yet, he was fully divine and yet fully human. He wearied, he was thirsty, he was hungry. Now, I'm going to say this and it might seem a little sacrilegious. But you know that Jesus went to the toilet? That sounds weird to even hear me stand here in the pulpit and say that. Now you don't have to try and picture it. But I'm just saying that it sounds weird 
So I shouldn't have even said that in it because immediately that's where your mind goes. But Jesus, the Son of God, he had bodily functions. Just like all of us. Jesus was fully human. And so he's sitting by the well and the lady comes up and he asks her for a drink. Verse 9, the woman said to him, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she knew full well what the status quo was. She knew what the state of affairs was. She knew that he was a Jew, she was a Samaritan woman, and they don't interact. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus responds to her graciously. Now, she was absolutely right that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So, on that level, she was in the negative. Being a woman put her in the negative. You know that rabbis were not given to speaking to women in public. Even their wives. They had some issues. Trust me, because I know I'd never get away with that. <laughs> but they, had, they were racist. Don't deal with them Samaritans, them unclean dogs. They were sexist. Women? Huh. Lower class. Second class citizens. She was double negative at this point. Not only was she uh, an unclean nationality in the eyes of the Jews, but she was religiously off-key. So you know that feeling you get when the Jehovah's Witnesses come to the door? And you're like, shall I open the door to them? I only have one reason to open the door to them, and that's if I'm going to preach the gospel, and I don't really have time for that right now, so I'll just pretend I'm not here. We do that, right? If it were anyone else, we'd open the door, even just out of curiosity. Why is this person knocking my door at this time on a Saturday morning? But as soon as we see the attire, we're like, hmm, watchtowers in hand. No, they're off-key. So she's a triple negative at this stage. Situation's going from bad to worse for this woman. Jesus says to her, if you knew the gift of God, what a tremendous consideration. What a tremendous proposition to put before this woman. The gift of God. You see, Jesus looked at her and he didn't define her 
by her gender or her nationality or her religious convictions or background. He looked at her as a person in need of the gift of God. How often do we look at people that we don't check for, that we don't like, how often do we look at them in that way? I remember when the um, killing of Lee Rigby took place over in Woolwich, just down the road. And I was actually over in Woolwich that day and um, came back over um, these sides and initially didn't understand what was going on, tuned into the news, there was a lot of traffic and everything, and heard of this horrific situation where these two, um, I'd say Muslim extremists, but it's probably more fair to say Muslim fundamentalists, um, had hacked this individual to death. And I remember kind of waiting to hear the outcome of what, what happened to these guys. Because obviously the police, they, they weren't even running from the police. They were there baiting the police, wanting the police to come and make martyrs of them. They actually, one of them actually made a run at the police with a little hatchet as they're there with firearms and was shot and yet lived. And I remember hearing people saying, I oh, should have died. Other people saying, no, he shouldn't die. He should be tormented with, with what he's done for the rest of his life. And I remember feeling a certain level of, of, of relating to those sentiments. What they'd done was just like barbaric. It was, you know, it, it was just beyond comprehension. Just couldn't understand on the streets of London that this has happened in such a way for such reasons. And I remember speaking with someone, I can't remember if it's the same day or the next day. And I mean, you know, we were all shell shocked. I remember we was we was over at St. Peter's at the time. Um that's where we were meeting for church and um I can't remember. It it happened during the the, the week, if it was a Wednesday or a Thursday. But there was a point in which we had to get together. I think it was for rehearsal or whatever. And I remember speaking to someone and they was in tears over it. And I was thinking, you know, this, this has happened in our area, southeast London. They're in tears. They feel really affected by it, you know, just horrified. Um, and the person said, I just, what's going to happen to them? They're going to go to hell. I mean, we should pray for them. They're still alive and, and everybody hates them. And, but they need to be saved. And this is why the person was crying. With such deep concern for their eternal well-being. That individuals would believe a lie to the extent that 
they would go and do something so horrific and barbaric. And I sat there and I just thought to myself, wow, how hard-hearted am I? Because that was the furthest thing from my mind when I thought about the two Michaels who had committed this crime. The furthest thing from my mind was their eternal salvation. And I thought, how barbaric am I as a Christian who knows the eternal destiny of those who are in sin? Whether they've committed such a barbaric uh, incident or not, when a person dies apart from Christ, they will experience eternal judgment. And it's eternal. It's not momentary. And I was challenged because, you know, the person said, Jesus died for them as well. And it's not something that I didn't know. But it's something that I didn't know in that moment. Furthest thing from my mind. And it's so easy for us to define people by their background, their status. You know, the reality is that everybody loves a comfort zone. And people that don't conform to our expectations, it's very easy for us to keep them at arm's length. To not care for them, not be concerned for them. I heard a guy speaking earlier about mission, giving out tracts and so on. There are people that we will pass. There are people that are within our sphere of, 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 of life that we will not think to reach out to. We have prejudices. Some of us are snobbish. And we look down on those with a lack of education. And we look down on those who are uncultured and unrefined. And we look down on those who are just a little too ratchet, a little too ghetto. And some of us are prejudiced against, quote-unquote, the underclass or lower-class people. And we need to repent. Now, I don't generally tend to find myself in that category, but I was convicted the other day because I realized that, you know what? I've been prejudiced against snobs. I'm that guy that's going to rep the underclass. That ain't no secret. But am I going to do that to the point where I'm going to have a dislike and a disregard for those who are educated and have experienced some of the finer things in life and who may even be snobbish? Because not everybody who has had that experience looks down on others. But am I even prepared to go as far as loving and caring for and considering those who are snobbish. The ones that I would actually actively choose to dislike. See, we must consider the gift of God and who it is through whom we are able to receive it. And that's Jesus. Because if Jesus, 
If anyone had opportunity to look down on others, it was Jesus. It's like, can you walk on water, fam? (laughs) Can you turn water into wine? Can you raise the dead? Can you heal the sick? Jesus had opportunity to look down on everyone. And yet, look at the way in which he so graciously responds to this woman. Verse 10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? So evidently she doesn't understand. She's still thinking in natural terms. She's still thinking... Cool, that water sounds nice, but how are you going to give it to me? Like, what have you got to offer me? You don't even have a bucket. You were sitting here at the well waiting for me to come along. Because I have bucket and you have nothing. And the well is deep. And you're going to tell me about living water. May we not be limited to viewing life from merely a natural perspective. And missing the wonder of God at work. Verse 12. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Digging a well was no joke. Wells were very deep. And this particular well was very well dug. Because not only did the well um, collect water. But it was fed by a spring. And so Jacob not only gets ratings for actually having dug the well, which in and of itself is a, is a huge job, but also locating the well in a place where it's fed by a spring of water. This was a historic monument that they were sitting at right here within the region. And it was one that both the Jews and the Samaritans had relationship with and a sense of ownership with because Jacob was one of the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac and Jacob he predated both of their existences as nations and so they both recognized him as their root so are you greater than our father Jacob he gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock This well has been providing for many years and for notable people. Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Hmm. That sounds kind of satisfying. The woman's thinking, verse 15, as she says to Jesus, Sir, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now you have to understand this. Women in those days didn't go to the well at midday to draw water. They wouldn't go at the hottest part of the day 
to go and draw water. Under the heat of the sun, this strenuous work, pulling the water up the 100 meter depth of the well. Why was she going there at this time of the day to draw water when other women didn't do that then? And they were, the, they were normally the water carriers. We get a little insight into that as Jesus puts his finger on her issue. You see, she doesn't want to have to come to this well again. Who would? It's like saying, who loves going shopping midday on a Saturday in the supermarket? You're like, you know what, I'd rather just go 24 hours at midnight. 24-hour Tesco at midnight. Because I'm not trying to negotiate the aisles on a Saturday with crying kids and unconsiderate people banging me with their trolleys and queues all around the block. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right, saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Uh-oh. You know that moment when you think somebody's hacked your, your account and uh, they've been reading your emails, they're like, they've cloned your phone and they're getting your texts. This woman was coming to the well at midday because she was a social outcast. Now, not only in the eyes of a Jew was she a Samaritan and a woman and religiously off-key. You know the Samaritans, right? They had their own version of, of, of the Old Testament. The, the Samaritan Torah. And the Samaritan Old Testament disregarded everything apart from the first five books of the Old Testament. And even the first five books, they made their own edits and amendments. So she knew that as much as they had a little in common, they were not on the same page. And yet she had deeper issues. Because she was a, a social outcast. Regarded as an immoral woman. In a culture where marriage was the norm and fidelity was the expectation, she had had multiple marriages and was now living in a relationship where she was not married. Which is not right in the sight of God. And so her going to the well at midday was her escape from the gossip and the susu-susu and the rare tear-tear that would follow her as a social outcast. Those who would be, yeah, you know, my girl from just over a bicycle. That's her. Oh, yeah. I heard that she's with another man, you know. The shame and the stigma. And Jesus knew this. 
And he shows her that he knows this. And how does he know this? By a supernatural insight. He doesn't know this woman from Eve in that he's never met her before. This is what we like to call today a divine appointment. Literally, (laughs) she has met with the divine. And he exposes her life to her. And what he does is he exposes her need. She desires satisfaction. She's thirsty. That has different connotations today. Often used as a, as a term for those who are not familiar. Used as a term for those who are um, somewhat lecherous, maybe. Or just begging relationship. To put it in a polite way. She was thirsty. But as one brother said in the lyric, she was thirsty, not for water, but for mercy. She doesn't want to have to come to the well at midday and go through the strain. She doesn't want to have to be dodging the groups of ladies that ostracize her and talk her business and disrespect her. She doesn't want to have to be going through all of that pain. And yet that comes from lifestyle choices that she's been making. Now it's interesting because we would say, okay, she's had five husbands. That's not necessarily such a bad thing, right? Because they were married. But there's an evident sense in which her present immoral state is merely the icing on previous the previous state of her relationships. So there are probably not many of you who will necessarily recognize this lady. Elizabeth Taylor, that's right. And Elizabeth Taylor is um, an iconic individual as far as celebrity goes. Um... Elizabeth Taylor, it could be said, was maybe, I don't even know who to liken her to today. I would say Kim Kardashian, but but she don't really have that same kind of aura. Like, nah. (laughs) I don't know. Who who could we liken, if you know anything about Elizabeth Taylor? I mean, she was regarded as the most desirable, at one point the most beautiful woman in the world. Uh, An actress who was pursued by many um. I'm top, top, like A-list celebrities of her day and so on. And you can see, um, very photogenic. And yet, one of the things that Elizabeth Taylor is most known for is for having eight marriages, eight husbands. Hmm? Well, ah, you see. I've done my homework, you know. It's actually eight in that she married one person twice. All right, then. Richard Burton, another one of Hollywood's leading men. And they had a fiery and stormy relationship 
to the point where when Richard Burton first worked on the first film together with um, Elizabeth Taylor, she was married. And before they worked on the film, he said to his friends, and this was the kind of guy that he was, give me two days and she'll be in my bed. That's what he said before the, 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 all the, 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 the cast and crew descended. That's what he said to his friends. He actually got it wrong. It was five days. But she was a married woman. Such was the nature of their relationship. They were at a party together. And this is from her biography. Um, I didn't even know the name of the author. I should have done. Forgive me. Um, this is from one of her biographies. biographies. Um, it said that they were, at, they were at a party together. Her and her husband and Richard Burton was there. And he calls over to Elizabeth Taylor. If you're my woman... Come over here to me now. She's standing with her husband. Husband's just like, leave it. She's taken. She's spoken for. We'll see. And he stands there. If you're my woman, come over here to me now. And put your tongue down my throat and prove it. This is what he said. And everybody's in there now feeling nervous. You know when you feel that kind of, you feel anxious for somebody you feel anxious for the husband you feel anxious for like please Elizabeth, please don't do this and what happens is she goes over and plants her lips on Richard Richard Burton's face and it was said that she was always dissatisfied with her husband because he was never man enough she would always provoke him to try and make him act mad, get some kind of response from him. But he was a charming, kind and considerate individual. Imagine that. She was dissatisfied with that which she should have been satisfied with. Their relationship ensued and they married and they divorced. And they married again sometime later. And they divorced. And there was at one point in between the two marriages to Richard Burton that as, as the first stint of their relationship was ending, it's quoted that she said something along the lines of, um, I love him so deeply we can barely live together. Pray for us. Which was an interesting quote. But one of the things we see in the experience of Elizabeth Taylor and one of the reasons that people look back and even at the time frowned upon her. She had children with the husband that she left. She had just recently adopted a child and she left him and the children to go and be with Richard Burton. And she was seen as the scarlet woman and she was frowned upon and Especially in an era when that was very decadent. It seems like these days that's probably like nothing, right? And yet still, despite the fact that they appeased their conscience by marrying, their relationship was not healthy and it wasn't legitimate. And so as we look to the woman in the world, 
and we hear the fact that she's had five husbands. There is, there is clear suggestion of immorality in that fact. Now, granted, one of the husbands may have died. Maybe two of the husbands have died. If, all, if three husband, husbands had died, having been married to this woman, people begin to ask questions at that point, right? <laughs> what kind of black widow woman is this that eats her partners? I like how they never had CSI in those days and right. So we don't know. Even if they had all died, it would have been fishy. Undoubtedly, there was divorce in there. And maybe that was because, like Elizabeth Taylor, she had a sense of dissatisfaction. She was looking for something more from those relationships. Well, Jesus knew this. And he understood this. And yet he's gracious to her. Jesus isn't you scarlet woman. Why are you out here at midday under the hot sun. Drawing water by yourself. With no help. Yeah I know your sin. God sees and knows all things. What we see here is grace to the humble. There's a saying, afflict the comforted and comfort the afflicted. Law to the proud and grace to the humble. You see, when Jesus confronted Nicodemus, he was more confrontational. He challenged him concerning the law of God. You are a teacher in Israel and don't know what it says in the writings? You're slipping, Nicodemus. And so there are those times when we need to be straightforward with the message of God's law and God's judgment. Especially to those who are comfort, um, comforted in their state, who think that me and God are all right. The self-righteous, the ones who think that they have no need for a savior. And yet, when dealing with the broken, when dealing with the hurting, when dealing with those who are very aware of their sin and feel hopelessly lost in it, we bring the comfort of grace as we see here. And so the woman responds in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And it's suggested that in the original, this could be read, I perceive that you are the prophet. You see, even though they only held to the five foot, five, first five books of the Bible. Contained in Deuteronomy was the prophecy that a prophet will come like unto Moses. And the Samaritans had their expectation of this prophet 
They had this expectation of the Messiah. They never used that term, the Messiah, although it's used here in the text, as we'll see in a minute. They would, they would use the term Tahid, being the prophet, the one who is to come. And she stands there as Jesus speaks with revelatory power, completely exposed and undone. Now, as a side note, I just want to say this. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. And we believe in the gifts of the Spirit as being that which confirms the Word. That, that which follows the Word. And not that which we follow. You see, there are those that follow after signs and follow after wonders. And they are not, dis- they are not satisfied with the Word of God alone. But they have to have more. And yet we recognize that that is part of God's providence and provision, part of his working through his church, the Holy Spirit residing in us, making himself known through us. And it happens, but they're not to be sensationalized. So there are individuals, myself included, who have seen God work in supernatural ways. Does that now mean that we, you know, go and start up ministry of, of miracles and healings and we put all the focus on the gifts rather than the giver? I was speaking to someone the other day who said that, um, and it was interesting actually the way it happened because somebody had shared with him and said, look, you know what, you're, you're involved in evangelism, and I really just have a sense that God's going to use you prophetically in evangelism. So he's like, yeah, yeah. And he's, he's a sober-minded brother, so he didn't get kind of giddy with it and that. And then uh, he was in a situation where he was doing some evangelism and ministering to some young people, and he just began to tell them about their life. He said to this one girl, um, you know, you've been, you've been cutting yourself and you're depressed with what's going on at home and um, you've never told anyone about it. She just burst into tears. Literally burst into tears and her friend was standing there and then he'd said something to her friend and she ran out the door because it was absolutely true. And there was a uh, a young man who was there within their friendship group who was standing there and he just stood there and he said, I believe in God now. Who previously, a few minutes ago, he was like, no, I don't believe in God. I would encourage us to be open. First and foremost, to declare the word. To be willing to bring the word to people. Trusting that as we step out in faith, God will give us that which is needed to be said in the moment. One of the biggest mistakes people make is that they look at the scriptures, they look at the ministry of Christ, they look at the the Acts of the Apostles, and they think that this stuff was happening like every second of every day. And that's how it's supposed to be in our lives. You look at the Gospels, the ministry of Jesus spans three and a half years. You look at the book of Acts and it's decades 
It's notable when it happens and we give thanks for it. But that's not what we live for. We live for the glory of Christ as manifest through his word, which is often confirmed with signs following. And so, having said that she perceives Jesus to be a prophet, full marks for perception. She goes on to almost change the subject. That uncomfortable moment when you've been exposed and you're like, okay. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she starts to bring up a theological issue. And isn't that often the case? When we're talking to people and we're sharing the gospel with them and they're kind of feeling a bit convicted. But then where did Cain get his wife? Did Adam have a belly button? You know that Adam was a black man. And my answer is always, and what relevance does that have to your salvation? If those questions are answered, are they going to make you really believe that Jesus is Lord? Did Adam have a belly button? Who cares? Really, like... Now there are answers for all of these things and there are books out there. And I can't even say that I've taken time to read whether Adam had a belly button or not. (laughs) But... The reality is, keep people on the point. It's all about Jesus. So she kind of tries to divert the conversation to a theological issue. And even in doing so, she's expressing a satisfaction in something that she ought not to. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. We've got our theology. We've got our doctrine. And they literally did worship on that mountain. Because on Mount Gerizim, they had built a temple. A temple to their own brand. Their own version of Old Testament belief, if you like. And they done what many do today. And... I'm wrapping up, believe me. But I want you to hear this. Because this is so important. And it affects so many of us. And has affected so many of us. These Samaritans done what many do today. And there's a word for it. And it took me a while to get my head around it. You see, these individuals had brought truth they had dismissed aspects of the truth and they had added to what the truth was and in doing so they were guilty of what's known as heterodoxy now i'm not trying to sound clever but when you understand this concept it's going to help you because not all that glitters is gold and not all that say lord lord is of him 
And they will even claim to read from the same Bible. But there will be certain truths that they dismiss and won't submit to. And there will be certain things that they add to their understanding of the scriptures by way of a different interpretation. First of all, to be heterodox is to hold to other teaching. Other teaching. Now, what people ought to be is orthodox. And that is holding to right teaching. And when it says right teaching, it's talking about that which has been confirmed as belief. That which has been generally approved, has been established. That which is sound or correct doctrine. So that's orthodoxy. And we have to bear in mind that the scripture tells us in Second Peter chapter 1 that the Bible has one interpretation. As you go to any point in the text, that text has one interpretation. And so if we are not understanding the interpretation of that text in the same way that the church did a hundred years ago and a thousand years ago and the early church fathers, if we're not understanding it in the same way that has been established in the ears of the first hearers, then we're not understanding it properly. When the scripture was given to the first recipients, they had an understanding of the one interpretation, of the one meaning of any given text. And it is that understanding that we are to try and understand and get to grips with and not make up our own understandings. Thank you, sister. And so orthodoxy is to hold to that which has been established, stood the test of time, been proven and accepted throughout church history. Now, there are so many things in my life, and we'll talk about it at a community group, that I accepted as truth because it was from the pages of the Bible, but it was not consistent with the, the right interpretation. And so as a result, I did hold to truth, but alongside that, I had embraced error and I'd become heterodox. We're warned of this in Second Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now this is Peter talking, one of the apostles, the, the apostles who followed Jesus within the inner circle. He's not even dead yet. It's not as if the first generation of, of apostles had died out before her heresies and errors were coming in. You look at the letters of John and you see him combating errors. You see this throughout. From the very inception of the church, there were errors. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are errors that we must be guarded against today. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, 
even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And I'd, I'd encourage you to, to read those verses and the context of those verses in your own time. Because it goes on to give an example which sounds very much like prosperity doctrine today. What's known as the prosperity gospel. And why is the prosperity gospel heterodox? God wants you to be healthy, wealthy and wise. Yeah. Is there truth in that? Talk to me. Is there truth in that? There is truth in that, right? But the problem is when we become the center of the universe and God exists for us, like the genie and Aladdin, who's just there to give us whatever we want, unlimited wishes in the name of Jesus. As long as we say in the name of Jesus, we will have unlimited wishes. Now I was there. So I speak from experience. And I've come to understand that's heterodoxy. That is not true truth. I heard somebody once say that true prosperity is having sufficient to do the will of God for your life. Does that mean a big house and a big car? It might do if that's God's will for your life. And that's going to be a means by which you further the gospel. And then it may not. It's being in content with the fact that we were made for God and his glory. He wasn't made for us. And so, Jesus addresses the heterodoxy. He said to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. I mean, you've only got half the Old Testament. You've only got half the Bible. Not even half. So how are you even going to know what God's plan and purpose is? How are you going to know what God's will is? You've only got the first five books. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. So She's saying, well, you guys say we worship in Jerusalem and we say we're going to worship on Mount Gerizim. He corrects her. He doesn't leave her in her error. You, you guys have got your own ideas, but salvation is from the Jews. Know this. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So Jesus sets the record straight. Hold on. Salvation is from the Jews. So don't think that you guys have got the complete picture. And furthermore, even the Jews don't fully understand that it's not about Jerusalem. What did he say in chapter 2? I am the temple. It's about Jesus. And so those that worship God will worship him in spirit. And we see a, a, an allusion back to chapter 3. The regenerative work, the new heart given by the Holy Spirit. You must be born again. And truth in accordance with God's revelation of himself as she sees Jesus standing there in front of her. Consistent with all that was written of him 
in the Old Testament and all that is now given unto us in the New Testament. If somebody is not worshipping God from a regenerated heart and in accordance with his word, they are not worshipping him. You can't say that you have the father and you don't have the son. My brother once said it's like saying you're having Prada and you don't have the funds. It's not going to happen. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. That was, she knew that much and she knew that right. And she knew they had that in common. The expectation of the Messiah. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Now I want to encourage you to make a note of that verse. John 4.26. Highlight it. Whatever you need to do. Copy and paste. Put it in your notes. Whatever you Make a note of that verse. Where Jesus reveals himself to be the Messiah. That's such a loaded statement. So rich in meaning and implication. But here we see Jesus clearly own the fact to a Samaritan woman. The Jews weren't even ready for this level of revelation. Because it was too deep for them. They, they, they would struggle too hard to accept it because it was such a monumental statement. But this Samaritan woman, in her openness and brokenness, was ready to receive Jesus. And we see that Jesus went with the intent to fulfill God's will, even in Samaria. In Deuteronomy 11.29, it was prophesied, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessings on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. And right where they were standing was Mount Gerizim, as Jesus declared the immense blessing, the unfathomable blessing, that he is the Messiah. That's equivalent to him saying that he is the son of God, that he is the great prophet. He is the son of man predicted in the book of Daniel. He is the one who was prophesied of by the prophets of old. And she stands there in the light of Jesus' self-disclosure. Jesus is sufficient. And we must learn to be satisfied with him and dissatisfied at the fact that there are people who don't know him. Even people that we don't like. Even people that we don't want to like and we don't want to know and we don't want to reach. We should be dissatisfied in our hearts that there are such people because the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That verse is a familiar verse for many of us, because we think that it defines us as being worshippers, singing our songs of praise, worshipping God in song. Worship is much more than singing. 
It is a posture of the heart that is bowed in adoration of the living God constantly. That's what a true worshipper is. And that worship is expressed in every aspect of our life. In all that we do, we approach it with that, that bowed posture of adoring submission. And so it's much more than singing, but it's not less than singing. And I think maybe to, to some extent, we've allowed the pendulum to swing too far. And we're like, well, worship is more than singing, so I'm not going to sing. I challenge you, read Psalms 1 to 150 and then tell me at the end of that that you're not going to sing. When you are instructed, you are commanded to sing God's praise. And so, may we be satisfied with Christ who is the Messiah and dissatisfied with his glory not being revealed in our lives and through our lives. And maybe you're here today and like this woman at the well, you have some kind of religiosity. But you've not really embraced the whole truth of the scriptures. And you've not embraced Jesus entirely. And maybe Jesus has really just kind of been to you like those who are guilty of heterodoxy, as somebody who's just going to, you know, give you what you need and make your life better. Jesus isn't like a mobile contract bolt-on that just improves the service. He is the Messiah, the living God. And we submit our lives to him. And so, as I ask the team to come back and join me, let's just take a moment to reflect on where we're at. How have we been living our lives? Have we been living our lives in such a way that actually we've pursued our own satisfaction? We've not pursued God? Have we lived our lives in such a way and do we live our lives in such a way where the fulfillment of our desires is primary? And the fulfillment of God's will is secondary. Because if so, that puts us in a place where we're guilty of heterodoxy. That puts us in a place where we're guilty of unfaithfulness. Just as the woman at the world was, was guilty of unfaithfulness. We too are guilty of spiritual adultery. When we put other things before the Lord. Let's stand. Father God, we thank you for your grace in giving your son. In your son, we have life. Forgive us, Lord, for those ways in which we have been less than satisfied with that which you have given from your hand. Help us, Lord, I pray. Help us to be fully submitted to you. Help us to be, Lord, repentant, genuinely, through and through, for seeking our own desires and seeking our own way. Thank you, Lord God, 
forgiving Christ, that we may have relationship with you, that we may have abundant life. Teach us to cherish the things that you cherish, Lord. Teach us to cherish the people that you cherish, Lord. May we be motivated, Lord, this week to give out a track. Furthermore, give out two tracks and even to seek someone that we wouldn't even want to give one to. Lord, we understand that there are people who are dying right now for the testimony of their faith in Christ as Lord. ISIS are still hacking people's heads off for faith in Christ. And as somebody said, they're willing to lose their head and yet when we're not even willing to lose approval, the approval of others. Help us, Lord, to be those who, like Jesus, give ourselves to seek and save the lost. In whichever sphere of life, whether it's in the boardroom, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's on the street. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for our sin, dying for our unfaithfulness, and granting us your spirit who empowers us unto works of service. Have your way in and among us, Lord, we pray. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.